Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Um, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, um, as, I was, as we were finishing up Psalms and getting ready to go to our next destination, I was just kind of going back through the preaching calendar um, in my computer over the last couple of years. And uh, as I was uh, taking a look at it, I realized that we had, back in 2018, we be- began a journey through the book of Mark, and we had made it through seven complete chapters, which puts us at chapter 8, which is halfway point, Mark 16 chapters long, and for whatever reason, it, it looked like we were coming up on the Christmas season, so it was probably just a break uh, for a Christmas sermon series, but for whatever reason, I did not pick back up at the beginning of the year and uh, complete the book of Mark. So that's what I'd like to do, is to start this Sunday, and, and you know, the Lord willing, and we make it through the end of the year, uh, we should be able to complete uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, before, we close the, uh, before we close the year out. So this morning we want to take a look here at chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. It's a very familiar story, but I want to say this to you at the outset. It's not the familiar story that you're familiar with. Okay? Because many people believe that this story in Mark 8 and the previous story in Mark 6 are the same story, just retold. And that's not the case. I'm not going to go into all the nuances of why these two stories are different, but they are. Okay, So in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Jewish territory, and he has 5,000, it says, Jewish men there, and women and children. So we anticipate that the crowd could have been anywhere from 10,000 people to upwards of 25,000 people. And Jesus feeds that crowd with um, a a few fish and uh, a couple of loaves of bread. Well, today we come to another story, except if you were to back up, and we're not going to take our time to do this, but if you were just to look back at the end of chapter 7, you would see that Jesus has moved out of Jewish territory, and he has moved into Gentile territory. He is in an area uh, of, of that world called the Decapolis, D-E-C-A-P-O-L-I-S. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. So he is in, a, he is in an area that is made up of ten cities. Uh, we have an area up in northeastern Tennessee called the Tri-Cities area. It's made up of Three cities. Well, this is the Decapolis. This is an area, a Gentile area made up of ten cities. And so that's kind of where we are when we pick up with the story. And he says, in those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered. This is always what's happening with Jesus, right? Great crowds are following him. And when we concluded chapter 7, he, Jesus had concluded chapter 7 with yet another miracle, uh, 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 a great miracle. And so, again, one of the reasons why the crowds are so great is because of the miracles. And they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples and said to them, 
I have compassion. Now, notice this is Jesus speaking on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him and said, How can one feed? Now, I want to stop right here because I want you to see the next two words. And really, these two words are almost the key to understanding the miracle that Jesus is about to perform. How can one feed these people? with bread here in this desolate place. Now remember, the disciples are the ones answering this question, right? Are the ones asking the question. And they're asking, how can one feed these people? The Gentiles. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the ground, before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Okay, the Greek word here for small fish, sardine. They had a few sardines. And having blessed them, he said that these also, also should be set before them. Now, something, let me, let me, let me uh, make sure we understand here. This crowd of 4,000 people, the crowd of 5,000, it says were 5,000 men and women and children. They only counted the, the, the men in that number. In this instance, the crowd is 4,000 altogether, including men, women, and and children. And he said that these also also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. Now, just a quick little teaching point here. That word for satisfied in in Greek is where we get our English word they were gluttoned. Everybody knows what that feels like, right? How many of y'all, maybe it was this morning or last night, you ate and when you got done, you put your hands on your belly and you were just like, I just can't eat another bite. I'm just so full. I can't believe I just ate as much as I... We, we, this is our phrase around our house. We say we're miserable. We ate so much that we are miserable. That is the idea behind satisfied. They were completely satiated. They were completely full. They could not have taken another bite. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. Now just one quick notation. In this story, we have seven baskets left over. In the feeding of the 5,000, we have 12 baskets left over. And we'll point out the significance of that in a few moments. And there were about 4,000 people, okay? And he sent them away. So this morning, what's, what's this passage trying to teach us, okay? What's it trying to teach us? Well, I think this text is really tailored to teach us that Jesus is enough for everyone, even these people. 
that Jesus is enough for everyone, even these people. And unless you're Jewish this morning, you are these people. This is your story. This is my story. We're the people outside of the covenant of God according to Ephesians 2. And so this text is saying to us, just like it said in the story of the 5,000, that Jesus is enough for the Jewish people. Jesus is enough for these people, the Gentiles. You see, Jesus is entering the final days of his ministry. We're, we're coming down the stretch here. Mark is a very interesting gospel because it's short, it's brief, it's fast-paced. It's like reading uh, Twitter or it's like reading the Daily News. Uh, it's, it's short, concise, and Mark's moving on very quickly. He uses the word immediately over and over and over again. He's constantly transitioning from one story to the next. And what's interesting about Mark is that Mark spends... Uh, pretty much eight chapters on the life of Jesus. And as we come out of chapter 8 and head into chapter 9, chapter 9 through chapter 16, Mark spends on the last week of the life of Jesus. Now imagine that. Mark is going to spend, of the three years of the ministry of Jesus, Mark is going to spend only eight chapters on the ministry of Jesus, and he's going to spend... Nine, chapters 9 through 16 on the final week of Jesus. What do you think Mark wants us to understand? <laughs> the ministry of Jesus is great, but the death of Christ is what, what matters. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection is, is what matters. But listen, as, as Mark is coming to the end of his record of the ministry of Jesus, he shows us something very interesting about Jesus. And that is, he, he shows us that through the life of Jesus, Jesus is constantly talking about his death, his impending death, that I'm going to die, I'm, I'm going to be crucified. He says that over and over again, but yet, in this moment, when he's getting ready to complete this ministry... He doesn't say anything in this particular passage about his impending death, about his impending destiny. But at this moment, he is focused not on the cross, but on his commission. I want you to follow. I want you to hold that thought in your mind because I want to show you that in the text this morning. Jesus will die for sinners... Yet, he's going to delegate his message of salvation to the disciples. He's going to die for sinners, but he's going to delegate this message of salvation to the disciples. And he knows their sinful propensities. As Jewish, as Jews, they would recall and even resist, as Jonah did, preaching to people outside of the Jewish ethnicity. Jesus often went outside of Jewish culture and Jewish towns and circles to, to touch those whom Jews absolutely detested. And each of those vignettes served as reinforcements that salvation 
was yes, for the Jew first, but also to who? The Gentile. Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever lived, knew something that all great teachers know. You better not say it one time and think they're going to get it. Hmm? You better not say it one time thinking that they're going to get it. The best teacher is repetition. The best teacher is repetition. So he takes them on one last journey into Gentile territory. Now remember, he's been outside of Gentile territory before. Remember when he went down into Samaria? And that really disturbed the, you know, his, his, what are we doing going down? We're not supposed to go down here. These are not our people. These are the people we stay away from. Jesus is constantly having interactions throughout his ministry with Gentile people. So he needs one more time to remind his disciples, to reinforce the idea, and not just the idea, but the teaching that the gospel is for everyone. He wants them to know that he is enough for everyone, even these people. So I got just three points this morning, and here's point number one. What we need to learn about the compassionate Christ, and that's what I'm calling the sermon this morning, the compassionate Christ, what we need to notice first is we need to notice the context of the story. The context of the story tells us everything. Let's go back to those first four verses and look at them again. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come far from far away. And his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? So here's some contextual uh, uh, information that we need to rightly understand what Jesus is doing. We need to see that they were in a desolate place, right? And what does desolate mean? Desolate. Desert. Away from people. This is unlike the miracle of the 5,000 when they were close to the Sea of Galilee and they were, there were towns all around them. They are out away from anybody. They're in a desolate place. They're also what? They are far away from home. And some of them are really far away from home. Well, we also see that they hadn't eaten for three days. You know, I'm, I'm just going to sidebar this. What I love about this story, they haven't eaten for three days, and nobody seems to be grumbling about being hungry. Now, if you go back and read the story of the 5,000, especially John's record of that, of that event in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus feeds them, and then he crosses over in a boat, and when he gets to the other side, that crowd meets him over on the other side, and they're, they're grumbling and complaining because they're hungry already, because it was the next day. But yet this, this crowd, there's, there's no record of grumbling or complaining. 
But they were hungry. They hadn't eaten in three days. And many were physically on their last leg. That word, they will faint, you see it right there? They will faint, those, those three English words. That's one Greek word. And you know what it means? It means for a... Uh, it is the idea that they will collapse like a bowstring when it, when it comes unstrung. Think about that, a bow. When the bowstring comes unstrung, it just falls limp, it collapses to the floor. That is the idea of their physical condition, that they will faint. So this is both the geographical and the physical shape that they're in. They're in a desolate place. They're far away from home. They have followed Jesus here. Right? They're weary. Some of them are ready to collapse. That's the context. That's important for us to understand. Because if we don't see... If we, do, if we do not know this information, then the second point of the sermon is not going to have much impact at all. We must not only notice the context, but we must notice Christ's compassion. Notice Christ's compassion. Now, I think it's back in verse 2. No. Uh, yeah, verse 2, I believe it is. He says, I have compassion, right? I have compassion. Now, it's an interesting word. There it is in Greek. Anybody want to try to, anybody want to, try to pronounce the Greek word there? Splognizomai. That's how you say that word. Splognizomai. It, it means to be moved regarding the the, the bowels, the gut, the innermost of your body. It's, it's the idea that we feel, uh, that it, it's the idea of, uh, of when we are in great emotional pain, compassion, this, this, deep, uh, this, this deep pain deep down inside our very inner being. The inward parts where we feel Emotions, splagnizomai. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Our English Bible translates this word as compassion, meaning to suffer with. It describes a concern that arises out of feeling the other's need rather than purely rational motivation. In today's text, Jesus himself tells us that he is compassionate. Listen, this is the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus says of himself that he has compassion. Now the other gospel writers and the disciples tell us, like back in the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6.34, here it says, he went ashore and saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. That's, that's, that's the writer telling us that Jesus had compassion. But here, Jesus himself tells us that he has splognizomai. He, he has this deep compassion, this deep emotion in his inward parts. Why here? Why now? Why, why does Jesus wait and say this of himself here 
in this place and now at this time. Because Jesus wants to leave no doubt that his compassion, his salvation is for everybody. You know what? I think, it, I, I think Jesus knew how critically important it was for his disciples to hear him say. They knew that Jesus was compassionate, but I believe he knew their hearts well enough that they needed him. They, they needed him hear, to hear him say, I have compassion. The same splagnizomai that I have for Jewish people, I have for Gentile people. The words have been is one word in Greek. Some English translations use the word remained. This is the reason why Jesus is having compassion on them because they had remained with him or they had been with him, which means that they had continued with Jesus despite direction and conditions. Following Jesus does not always land us in green pastures. We can, we can be led into desolate places. And you say, well, what about Psalm 23 where it says, He'll, lead, he'll make us lie down in green pastures. Oh, He will. But listen, sometimes Jesus leads us into desolate places. But don't forget this. If you find yourself in a desolate place with Jesus, Jesus will satisfy you in a desolate place like you were in a green pasture. That would have been a good place to say amen. Notice the causation of Jesus' compassion because they had been with him three days with nothing to eat. I believe this crowd followed Jesus because they were genuinely interested in him. No doubt his miracles caused a great fascination. However, Matthew's gospel gives us insight into this story that Mark's gospel does not. Look at, this is Matthew 15, 31. Same story. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is what happens right before they, before they journey out into this desolate place. Why were they following Jesus? Because they really believed Jesus was who he said he was, I believe. It says, and they glorified the God of Israel. And they, they just didn't want to be with Jesus because of what he could do. They wanted to be with Jesus because of who he was. That's the difference between... The, the, the way the Gentiles responded and the ways the Jews responded. The Jews responded, they just wanted to be with Jesus because of what they could get from Jesus. And yet the Gentiles were there because they wanted to be with Jesus, not because of what they could get from him, but because of who he was. How many of you don't like it when people hang around you because of what they can get from you, not because of who you are? Am I the only person? Am I the only person that gets frustrated with bloodsuckers and leeches? That's probably, maybe that's a little graphic way to say it. But I mean, you've got those people that all they do is take, 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 take. 
And when it's all said and done, you realize they weren't with you because of you. They were with you because of what they could leverage or get out of you. Well, this is the kind of people that Jesus was always around. The kind of people that just wanted to get more and more out of him. And here's a group of people that I really believe, based on the information given, that were really with him because they wanted to be with him, not just to get what he could give them. John 6.66 says, after Jesus, this is that crowd of 5,000, he feeds them. He crosses over during the night. There's a storm. They make it through the storm. They get to the other side. The crowd comes around the side of the lake. They find him there. They're like, we're hungry again. We need some more food. And Jesus confronts them about, hey, all you want, you know what? I got some bread that's better than than real bread because I'm the bread of heaven. I've come down out of heaven to do what? To do more than feed your physical bodies, I've come to feed your spiritual body. But yet, you, you don't see that. And, and, and so Jesus says those famous words, he says, Unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part of me. And people thought he was into cannibalism, right? And they started saying, what is he talking about? Eating flesh and drinking blood. And Jesus is laying out the terms of discipleship. That true disciples are not coming to me for what they can get from me. They are coming to me because they want me. And look what happened after Jesus laid down. the. T- I mean, he just, he laid it out. In John six sixty six. funny that that's, <laughs> this verse lands on 666, right? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had compassion on the 5,000, and here he says with his own lips, I have compassion on the crowd. Jesus was not only moved by their physical condition, he was moved by their spiritual coming. Our text says nothing of grumbling or complaining, nothing of demands or questioning. Undoubtedly, no one was considering or threatening to go on. They were there because there was no better place to be no matter their condition. Y'all just want to take that statement and go home? There's no better place to be than with Jesus, no matter the condition. Lord, we're out here in the desert. We haven't eaten in three days. I am with you always. There's no better place to be. No matter the condition. Jesus did not come into the world to sustain us physically. He came to satisfy us spiritually. Through the miracle of feeding and the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is saying, my ability to satisfy your stomach is proof that I can satisfy your soul. Everything about Jesus points to satisfaction. Can I give you a couple things real quick? John 6.32, Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven that came from heaven. Then, where was Jesus born? Anybody remember the town? Bethlehem? Anybody know what Bethlehem meant? City of bread. (laughs) Then, Jesus said of himself, in the upper room, he says, this is, when he took the bread, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. 
What is Jesus saying? His whole life was about, I'm the only bread that can satisfy. Here Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles. The early miracle, he feeds 5,000 Jews. Jesus did not come to satisfy a particular group of people, but all people. When the 5,000 Jews were fed, there were what? Twelve baskets left over. Why twelve? Twelve tribes. What does Jesus say? I not only can satisfy you, but I can satisfy every Jew in every, tri- in every tribe. So what does the seven baskets mean? What do the seven baskets mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you were thinking along with me. I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Jesus here is not preaching about the cross as much as he is preaching and teaching about the commission. You know, the commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the commission, the commission to go into the world and preach. Because remember I told you, they they said, Lord, how can one feed these people? Here's the thing. I think some people confuse this, and they, they, it sounds like, are the disciples saying, Jesus, do you really have the power to do this again? Yeah, I mean, we knew you fed 5,000 before, but I mean, do you have the power to do this? I don't think they're asking Jesus, do you have the power or not? I don't believe that's what they're doing. So I don't think it's a question of power. I think it's a question of purpose. It's a question of purpose. These people. Lord, can these people really experience the covenant? Can, can, can you really feed these people the same way you fed your people? And then please don't miss this. Please don't miss the, 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 the commissioning part of this. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. And, and guess what? It just starts multiplying. I mean, wouldn't you love to have seen that? I mean, just like seven loaves of bread. And then it's just like, I don't even know what it looked like. I mean, like, did he just have it in his hands and it was just blowing up out of his hands like popcorn does in a popcorn maker? You know what I mean? I, don't, I mean, that's what I'm wondering. How did he multiply? That's a question I'm going to ask. I'm like, hey, can we have a replay of the feeding? Because I got to know what it, I mean, like we watch bread bake in an oven, right? And, and, but, but before it even bakes in the oven, you've got to go through this whole process of making the bread to bake in the oven. Jesus bypasses all of that and just puts bread in his hands and then just, it's just everywhere. I don't know. I'd, li- I'd like to see how that came down. But he, anyway, he does that. And then he has the disciples. He says, come here, James. Come here, John. Come here, Peter. Here's some bread for you. Here's some bread for you. Here's some bread for you. And all 12 of them get bread. And he says, now, go out and feed them. 
There's something more going on there than just go out and feed them. (laughs) He's like, look, this is when I die, this is what the rest of your life looks like. You take the bread and you go out and you feed these people over and over and over. Why? Because I've got bread that never runs out. Bread that never runs out. And then he takes the fish, the little sardines. And then again, how, I mean, just like, just sardines. I mean, we go from a few to enough to feed 4,000. And then the baskets that are left over. You want another quick little Greek lesson here? In the five feeding of the 5,000, the baskets that, you remember the 12 baskets? The word there is kafanos. It meant small lunch basket. The word here is used to talk about Paul when Paul was in trouble and they were trying to kill him. And it says they hid Paul in a basket and let him down over over the wall so he wouldn't be killed. I don't know if you remember that story in Acts. Well, that basket is big enough to put a human in. It's, It's like a hamper size. So they had 12 small baskets, little picnic baskets, and here we have seven hamper-sized baskets of fish and bread that are left over. And Jesus says, go out and feed them. Jesus is reminding his disciples that he came even for these people, and he's got enough for these people. So let me finish this way. Those seven baskets I spoke about, 12 baskets, talked about the 12 tribes of Israel. There's enough to satisfy all of Israel. But listen, these seven baskets that are left over, here's the passage. Let me get to it. There it is. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is the promised land, that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. Now count, count. Y'all count with me. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. I told y'all, you can't. You better read Deuteronomy and those books. They're there for a purpose. They're trying to tell you something. It may not be obvious at that moment, but here are the seven people groups that occupied Gentiles, that occupied the promised land. And the Lord says, you know what? You're going to run them out? That's, gonna, that's your land. That's the land I set aside from you. But listen, think again. Here's a Jew... They don't, they don't forget this story. You know what? God, God, God is, He loves us more than He loves these other people. Why? Because He ran those people out of their land to give us their land. And that's not the point. The point of it is, is that God doesn't love them more than He loves them. The, the, the truth is, God had a place set aside for His people, and there happened to be people that were not His people in that land, and God says, we're going to remove those people because this is the land that I've promised you. 
But that doesn't mean that I don't love those people, and, I, and, and it doesn't mean that I don't want those people to be a part of my people. And he has to reinforce it with this miracle, because when it comes to the end, I promise you, these disciples did not dismiss the fact that there were seven baskets left over and they were staring at Gentile people. They knew. They knew at that moment that Jesus was dead set serious that the gospel and his compassion for people extended far beyond the Jewish people. Extended right into Gentile people. Let me finish with these final words. In preparation for their commissioning, Jesus is teaching his disciples they are to have compassion on all of humanity, even these people. We need splagnizomai, a concern that arises out of a feeling, out of the feeling, out of feeling the other's needs rather than purely rational motivation. Splagnizomai, compassion will sustain. Rational motivation is as sporadic as our thoughts. We need splagnizomai, not just for those like us, but for these people. Jesus' new compassion would come easy for those like us. That is why he uses the story of the Good Samaritan. Real Christian splagnizomai is to be shown to everyone, even these people. Splagnizomai has no barriers, no conditions, and no limitations. We need help from above to feel compassion for these people around us. And our commission is to take Christ's salvation in splagnizomai to the world in both word and deed. There's not one person in this room that could not use more compassion. Why? Because I'm not saying we're not compassionate and but here's what I am saying. It's what the Bible is saying. We can have compassion on people like us. But Jesus is calling us to have compassion on everyone. And the real test of true compassion is that we will have compassion on those not like us. Why did Jesus have to make a Samaritan the hero of one of his best stories on being compassionate towards other people? Because he knows our sinful propensity is to keep our compassion, especially spiritual and eternal compassion, to those only like us. We all need to pray and seek God's help this morning in this area. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we all stand in a bad, in, in a bad place this morning, I believe. Yes, we love you. Yes, we want to do your will. Yes, we want to see people come to faith in you. Yes, we want people to experience your compassion through, through our lives. You don't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And in particular, Father, our neighbor that is so unlike us. Our neighbor that is repulsive to us. Maybe it's their, their ways or their language or whatever it is about them. But yet the true test of real 
Christian splagnizomai, compassion, is that we will be compassionate. That we will feel in our innermost being the pain and the, the, the suffering and the heartache of others. Father, we have far too long been sporadic in our compassion because really it's, it's really not a true compassion. We feel bad for people in certain situations and, and, and we make a momentary commitment, a short-term gift. But splagnizomai means that we enter into that long-term. We're like George Mueller who had true splagnizomai when he gave his life to the care of thousands of orphans over his lifetime. It's more than just saying something. It's, it's, it's something that we feel, and because we feel it in, our, in the inner depths of our being, it moves us to action, just as you were moved. Father, take us to that place. We won't get there tomorrow. We won't get there next week. It's a, it's a lifelong journey. But Father, it's one that we need to be on. It's one that we need to pray about. It's one that we need to confess that we have not, we have not lived our life in that direction. So help us to confess our sin. And help us to seek you and cry out to you daily in our lives and say, Lord, give me your splagnizomai. Give me your compassion so that others can know that you love them and you care for them in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this final song.